Today's episode is presented by Public. Public Public.com has just launched its new high-yield cash account, offering an industry-leading 5.1% APY. No fees, no subscription, and no minimums or maximums. That means you can grow your cash with 5.1% interest with no strings attached. It's as simple as that. Again, that is 5.1% interest with no fees, 5.1% interest with no subscription, 5.1% interest with no minimums or maximums, and 5.1% interest with up to $5 million of FDIC insurance, just 5.1% interest straight up, no strings attached. Sign up today at public.com backslash chit chat money. This is a paid endorsement for public.com, 5.1% APY as of December 20th, 2023, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description. High-yield cash accounts are available for U.S. members only. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan, Brett, or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm joined, as always, by Ryan Henderson. As you may have noticed here, I didn't say welcome in to Chit Chat Money, which is a little tease that we'll talk about in a couple minutes here. But we're doing our 2024 prediction show. I guess we're calling it hot takes because that's not really... uh, Everyone does predictions, so we're trying to make it a little bit more fun and unique. But we're going to do kind of an update on the show, some changes we're making for 2024, reviewing 2023, giving our highlights for uh, the show in 2023, some of our favorite episodes, going through our predictions from 2023, seeing what we got right, what we got wrong, and then making some hot takes for 2024, as well as some of our favorites of 2023, including blogs slash substacks, books, and investment pitches. Ryan? Am I missing anything before we get started here? No, I think that covers the basics. We, uh, we're trying to do a little revamp, a little rebranding of the old podcast. And so we've got some, some new initiatives, but for all our mainstay listeners or people that have been around for a long time, we're, we're, we're going to try to announce these changes in advance so that everyone doesn't get confused uh, especially with the name change, which will be coming. Uh, hopefully everyone can continue to listen and won't be so turned off by the name change. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to be turned off by that, but we don't want to confuse anyone. I think that's the big thing. Before we get into it, housekeeping items, as always, if you enjoy the show, give it a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That is the easiest way. It takes you about five seconds, and it is a great way to support the show Tell us that you like it. Follow us on Substack, Twitter, and YouTube. That's the other places you can find the stuff that we put out. You can listen on YouTube or watch on YouTube. You can follow the Twitter for clips, highlights, and other stuff. Uh, And then the Substack will have the newsletter, which sends out emails on a regular basis. And I think that is it. If you enjoy this episode that we're doing right now, 
I would recommend sharing it with someone. That is the best way, again, along with the reviews, to help us grow and make this into, a, you know, so more people can enjoy this stuff. All right. We're going to get into or calling the podcast revamp for 2024. There are not giant changes here, but I think there's a couple things that are important. We'll, we'll go, maybe this will probably take about five minutes or so, depending on how long it takes. But we want to get through these things first. Uh, the first one is a name change. And it's not a giant drum roll, one. please. Drum roll, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Here it comes. It is going from chit chat money to the wild name of chit chat stocks. So there we go. Huge name change. Pretty, but... pretty underwhelming announcement there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, need, it's it. You got to with a little more enthusiasm. Chit chat stocks. And uh, yeah, do you want to explain why we're doing this? Sure. So it's simply for the searching purposes and to have a name that more reflects what we actually do on the podcast. The logo is going to stay fairly similar, which we'll get to next. And we're keeping chit chat in there. So I don't think anyone will get too confused, but we're going to start that. I think February 1st, we'll give a warning uh, on every show from here on out through January in the intro. But yeah, that's really it. I mean, we're still focusing on the same type of content, business analysis, investing philosophy, investing news, markets, blah, 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 all that good stuff that we're still covering here. But we just wanted to make it a change from chit chat money to chit chat stocks because we think that a lot of the shows that have money in the title well they're more of a personal finance show and that's not really our style we're more stock analysis and that's what we want to reflect in our name anything there ryan before we move on no i mean it, i think people that don't know who we are and click on the name chit chat money probably are thinking it's going to be personal finance related and we talk very little about personal finance here. So yeah, it's just a little more indicative of what we truly talk about. And then it's also hopefully going to rank a little bit higher in searches. So if people are looking up podcasts about stocks, hopefully over time, it should begin to show up a little more as opposed to getting like just lost in the, uh, array of shows that have the title money in them so hopefully it uh makes us stand out a little more but that is purely the name change is primarily for discovery and hopefully to help kind of organic growth as opposed to anything i don't know it's not it's not too big of a rebranding exactly it's just a slight name change and i don't think a lot of people probably won't notice for a while until we say it on our show i'm sure that we're going to accidentally say chit chat and money a lot but it is officially going to be chit chat stocks in your feeds on february 1st but we're going to make that change and we'll give a fair warning there the next one is a slightly new logo we're adding our faces to it and why are we doing this um just because, again, it's a lot easier for searchability purposes. I think there's just some studies out there and about how if you put your faces on the logo, people are going to 
have a you're more likely to try out your podcast so we're gonna do that as a little bit of a growth hack and i don't think anyone should really care too much but if you if it looks slightly different in your feed that's why and we just want to give a quick warning about that we will also have a public advertisement on the logo for q1 that is not that's the company public who you'll hear about as we do some advertisements for them uh throughout 2024 we're really gracious for them to be joining the show as a sponsor and you can watch out for that definitely go check them out public.com i'm sure you're going to hear an ad for them in this episode as well so if you're scrolling your podcast feed and you say wow who are these two handsome young fellas that's still us it's the chit chat stocks podcast host brett and ryan and we're just putting our faces on it like you said to make it seem more relatable more personable and does it have any bearings on listenership i have absolutely no idea but there have been those little growth hack studies that say they do and also can't hurt yeah we're just experimenting with stuff some of the stuff might stick some of the stuff might not so we're we're trying stuff out and the name change the logo change or adding our faces are, are two of the steps in that process yep okay now the name and the logo doesn't really matter to the listeners too much especially if you're listening to this now you're probably an existing one but the one that, that what does matter is the actual shows we're doing a slight change here as well we are going to have new episode release days and that is wednesday and sunday only two a week first on sunday is the power hour which is recorded live on YouTube on Thursdays and then published to the podcast platforms, you know, Spotify, Apple, Overcast, Google Podcast, Amazon, et cetera, on Sunday morning. And that's going to not change. That's going to be the same thing we've been doing. We think people enjoy that format and it's not getting stale at all. But Wednesday is going to be our analysis and research show, which... The question I put in here is, do we need a nickname for these episodes? Because I haven't thought of one, but it's going to be combining sort of the interview type shows we do, the not so deep dives type shows that we do. Um, but we're not, the big change is not having a set cadence of the specific style of show we have to do on Wednesday. We want to do stuff that is has basically two criteria, having great quality analysis and then releasing things that listeners will enjoy, but not forcing it as we felt we did a little bit in 2023 and 2022. We'll do be doing interviews. I mean, right now, I, I think we're, we're focusing on kind of trying to get some of these sector interviews in there. We still want to do stock research. I think we have some interesting ideas there and then timely topics and updates on companies we follow. For example, uh, the first show we're actually going to do is a book review on the fund which is a book about Bridgewater Associates and Ray Dalio. And we just want to do stuff that listeners will enjoy with only one of these a week instead of two. We think we can improve the quality. And hopefully you don't listen to anything where you think, eh, they kind of just, uh, we never phone it in, but where it's not maybe the best podcast you'd ever listen to. We want to make sure we improve the quality there. And we know that two shows a week, we're still not slouching on, you know, consistently putting stuff out for the listeners. Yeah. And for the people that really enjoyed us having three shows a week, 
I'm sorry, but I do think this will help with the content. The unless you're a huge organization like Wall Street Journal or some sort of news organization, it's really hard to produce three or more shows a week that are ultra high quality. So this will allow us to actually spend more time not not only researching, but talking about something that we know intimately well, as opposed to our not so deep dive approach, which a lot of people love the not so deep dives and we appreciate everyone that's listened to those. However, there's times when it's a company that just frankly, no one cares about, but it might be a stock that we're really interested in researching. Maybe that could be something that's done on our own independently. And then we're presenting whatever once a month, our best research or the stock we like the best now, that kind of thing. And then we can also parlay that into, or not parlay that, but shift the show into other stuff that is worth talking about. So whether it's portfolio management, so how are we adjusting our own funds, answering important investing questions like, you know, how do you, how do you size positions, having specific re- like investing themes that we talk about, I think is going to be valuable to listeners too, beyond just the actual stock research for people that have listened to us forever, which I imagine there aren't that many still left. We used to do this way back when, where it was basically just timely inform- like timely news items. So uh, let's think of a recent news item. The Adobe and Figma deal broke. They, were, uh, they had to pay a billion dollar kind of breakup clause and, and part of it was due to the regulatory environment. That's something we could talk about at length if we have the format to do so, but by having the interviews and the not so deep dives structured in the way that we do now, it's hard to really talk about that other than through our power hours. So it's giving us a way to really dive into actual news items and present our best stock analysis as opposed to just doing one once a week. And sometimes if it's a company we know we don't care about, kind of going through the motions. So hopefully this will allow us to provide the absolute best content for you guys as listeners. Yep. And the key difference for anyone that's thinking, okay, well, what kind of stuff should I expect on the Power Hour? What kind of stuff should I expect on the Wednesday episodes? On the Wednesday shows, it should be a more, it's going to be almost always just one topic, but an extended research on it. And that could be a sector interview, like the discussions we've been doing with, you know, we had the luxury one, we've had the housing one, we just had the advertising technology one come out last week. It could be a stock we've researched for a month, one of us, or it could be and, like you and, mentioned that merger thing, but it's an extended discussion. And, and then on the power hour for people that listen, I know a lot of people listen to those episodes. That's a lot of quick hits, people interacting, and it's more fun, entertainment, um, kind of just what's on our mind. We probably hit like five to 10 topics every episode. Less research. That'll stay the same. What? Less researched on the power hour for the most part, because it's a lot of it's ask me anything type content. So we're kind of responding quickly, but to, to your point here, it can be interviews. It can be stock pitches. So something where not only are, have we researched it, but it's something we're actively buying. And now that we're not running the fund, 
we feel a little more comfortable being like, hey, we're doing this in our personal account. Here's why I'm doing it, as opposed to kind of a cursory overview of a stock we kind of know. It's something more intimate. It's providing more value for hopefully listeners because we know the business a little better and it's maybe more actionable as well because people can say like, oh, it's an attractive price today, that kind of thing. Maybe it's not. Basically, we want these to be we want people to take more away from these episodes, these episodes than what we've been doing with kind of the three shows a week. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And it's not like all of the not so deep desert interviews were bad. I'd say most of them were good. And, and it's just that sometimes we would hope, or we wanted to have more time to research for both of these. And we didn't want to, we sometimes forced ourselves to do things that we didn't necessarily want to cover at the time. So this will help us not do that. I hope people understand. If you have any questions, we have our email in every single show notes. So email us there, DM us on Twitter, give us any feedback. We'll listen. Now, the other thing is uh, for anyone that wants to know, and then we'll get into the kind of highlight show for 2023 and 2024. Uh, if you want to follow the show at any other distribution outlets, the three main ones are Twitter, where we'll be posting consistent video clips from the show, we're doing threads, any show updates, other interesting topics. You know, anyone that's listening should go follow us there. And I think you, sh you, you should, because that's how you get the best updates on the show. That's where we're posting on a regular basis. Then we have the Substack. Sorry, I got to sneeze a little bit here, trying to fight that. Uh, we'll be sending out newsletters to the subscriber base on a consistent basis when there is something interesting in addition to the podcast for them. So for example, on this show, we'll probably send out uh, some written stuff on our 2024 predictions or hot takes, as we're calling them, reviewing the 2023 ones, and then posting some links to our favorite episodes of 2023 as well, which we're about to get into. And then on YouTube, it's the other place that's we'll post basically every podcast there, unless a guest does not have... Uh, want to do video for whatever reason, which is up to them. And if you like the videos instead, definitely subscribe there too. Ryan, and then we should move on to the next segment unless you have anything else you think the in the listeners should, uh, should know as we go into 2024. No, I would just say to our longtime listeners, thank you so much for listening through all this time. We hope to provide another year of really valuable and fun investing content. It's going to be chit chat stocks from here on out. You're going to see our faces a little more, even if you just listen to the podcast through the through the logo there. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is we are going to try to do more interactive type stuff. So we're working on, I don't want to call a merch line, but some items that'll just be branded with the chit chat stocks logo. So it'll have, whether it's mugs, uh, uh, Yeti type of stuff, shirts, hats, whatever. We haven't decided yet. If you have any ideas, feel free to send them to us. But we're going to be giving away some items as well to kind of reward the listeners that have been with us for a long time. So that might not come too quickly, but uh, we, we hope to get that out maybe kind of end of Q1. Yeah, with, that said, with that yeah. said, let's do, I think before we get into our predictions, we should start with our three favorite episodes from this year. And this is relating to our own podcast. So listeners that haven't heard some of these episodes, maybe this will uh, funnel you back to our own shows here. But 
what were your three favorite episodes we did this year? Yeah, and I will say we'll post these links on the Substack as well, but it should be very easy to just either search on Spotify or Apple or wherever you're listening. You can find these or just keep scrolling in our feed. Uh, do a little control F, as I like to say. First one, and this is a fairly recent one, is the state of the luxury industry, which we did with Sleepwell Capital and Leandro that runs the Best Anchor Stocks newsletter. Really enjoyed this one. We got a lot of great feedback on it. And I think there's just a lot to learn about this market. And it's it's very unique. And they just did a great job explaining the history of the industry, who are the key players, why each player is different, all that good stuff. Second is the state of the housing market with Lance Lambert, who is the ex-editor at Fortune. I believe he was an editor, but more importantly, he has just started his own housing research newsletter called Resi Club. Uh, and he's just so good at following the housing market, anything real estate related. He's just like an encyclopedia on that. And I thought that when we asked him any question, he gave a detailed but concise answer and had just all these stats to back it up. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And then the third one that I thought we did a good job on ourselves was a rocket lab not so deep dive because this was a very interesting company it was very complicated i know a lot of people like this stock because people seem to love space economy stuff and i just thought i just came away thinking okay that episode we provided a lot of value to the listeners here yeah there's there's definitely some episodes that we've done over the years where it's like I feel really proud of it and it might not even end up getting that many listens, but it's something where it's like, I learned a ton and hopefully, or I think I was able to translate that. We were able to translate that to listeners that they learned a ton. My three favorite episodes from this year, we did an arch capital episode, which we were doing like once a month on why we don't own coupon. I ended up buying coupon shortly after this and it forced, we, uh, uh, it forced us to do some research. Here. And then it was like, why? at the end, we basically asked ourselves, why don't we own this? And I said, I don't know. It checks all the boxes that I'm looking for. And it seems like an attractive valuation. So ended up uh, actually buying some. Uh, and I own some in my personal account now. So that was kind of the inspiration for that. Yes, Brett? I would say we are still going to be doing these type of episodes uh, in 2024. This is the type of stuff you should expect instead of the not so deep dive format, which worked sometimes. We we want to keep things fresh and we're we're doing stuff more in that light. And especially because we're not professionally investing anymore. One key thing is we don't have to pretend to be aligned on everything <laughs> anymore, I think. So Ryan could pitch something. I could have some critiques on it and vice versa. I think that'll be quite fun and interesting for the listeners. Yeah, I agree. The The second one for me here on my three favorite episodes, it was, I was a little torn here between Visa and American Express. I felt like I got a lot of value out of both of those episodes, and hopefully we transfer that value to you guys as listeners. But our not-so-deep-dive, I'm going to go with Visa. I thought going back through the hit... It, Visa strikes me as one of those businesses that everyone kind of knows what they do, but doesn't deeply know what they do. And I was definitely one of those people, but it felt like after going through this episode and really visiting the history of Visa, I got a much better understanding for the value they provide to both 
merchants and customers and also gave me a little more solidified belief around how difficult they would be to displace as the network between well network basically facilitating payments globally so kind of just gave me a better appreciation for their moat my last one here would be our merger arbitrage discussion with andrew walker this was my i remember walking away from this episode thinking there wasn't any other episode that made me want to change some of my capital allocation strategy as much as this one. So Andrew basically talked about the fact that given sort of the regulatory environment right now and some of the antitrust pressures to try to break up a lot of mergers going on that otherwise maybe wouldn't have received as much scrutiny, it's presenting a really good opportunity for investors that are able to parse through it. And Andrew's really, really good at this stuff. We've had uh, maybe some failed experiments with uh, Activision merger arbitrage, but we've also had some, call it victories, I guess as well. But it's something where this opportunity set hasn't been that available up until the new administration for the FTC. So it's the EU and, and the UK one. Right. And so if you're able to follow it and you're able to have basically a well-informed take on whether or not something will go through, it seems like some of these are being getting sued to block without a whole lot of substance behind them, which is presenting a lot of big pricing discrepancies between stock prices. So anyway, it just I came away really convinced that it's something I need to focus more on and potentially use as a part of my... Uh, use some of my money for in in the future. Those are my big three. Do we want to review our predictions from last year? Sure. Yeah. Let's let's go through it. Let's go through it. Uh, we got yours pasted here first. Maybe why why don't you go through it? Then I'll, okay, so then I'll go through mine. Let me uh let me take you through the environment going into January first, twenty twenty three. So there was talk of a soft landing. Rates had risen pretty sharply. The NASDAQ had closed the year down 33.4%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average had closed down 9%, and the S&P had closed down 20%. So rough year across the board. And home prices were at record highs. So my big three predictions in 2024 2023 were we will have a soft landing i describe that as the the increase in cpi by the end of 2023 will drop below the current federal funds rate at the time which was four and a half percent this total cpi for november was 3.1 percent so i got that one right i not don't mean to brag here but some of these predictions were i wish i had trusted my gut with these the uh my next big prediction was the average U.S. home price measured by Fred's U.S. National, US National Home Price Index will decline by more than 10% from the January 1st, 2023 levels. The median sales price of houses sold in the U.S. has declined by 10%. The average sales price for new houses in the U.S. has declined by 14% through November of this year, but 
the average sales price of houses sold in the US has only declined by 7% so far this year. So I was technically wrong. That was sort of the metric I chose, but directionally correct, wrong on the actual number. I don't think it was very much, I, I don't think it was a very contrary take. A lot of people were kind of uh, believing that real estate couldn't stay that elevated for a while. My and last- I will say that there's data out there, like he's using Fred. Some data sources have different numbers out there. So if you see some different, it's because you probably are using a different data source. Yeah. My last one here, I said that the three major indexes, NASDAQ 100, S&P 500, and Dow Jones will finish in reverse order to how they did in 2022. So last year, Dow Jones performed the best, S&P performed the second best, and the NASDAQ performed the worst. This year, NASDAQ up 54%, S&P 500 up 25% roughly, and the Dow Jones up 13.5%. I did I do feel validated on this one because I got it right. Yep. That but was pretty good. The thing is, it's though, also when I just it took me away. <laughs> when, uh, yeah, true, true, true. That's it's not, it seemed a little more likely than I, I wouldn't say that was extremely bold, but I think a lot of people wouldn't have agreed with you. There were so many people at the end of 22 that said, oh, the, this is just like the dot com bus, QQQ is over, blah, 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 blah. But Ryan, it took me so much convincing to get to get you to for uh to buy like Amazon or something like that, and, and I you were still very hesitant to quote unquote uh, maybe load the boat on that on that one at the time. It's fine. So you were conflicting yeah. uh, for for yourself. Well, these are my gut takes, and I guess maybe gut feel matters more in investing than I initially thought. The other thing I will say here is. At the end of 2022, 2022, it felt easier to make predictions than it did today. So I agree. Like it had just been such a rough year and it felt like there was a lot of overcorrections with equities, especially that some of the, some of the predictions felt a little easier. Whereas it seems like we're more in kind of a limbo period right now, like rates. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. It wasn't as well telegraphed as it was at this time last year. And I mean, housing has come down a bit. So how much of it is priced in kind of thing? It just, it was a little easier to have bull takes this time last year than than I thought it did, thought it was today. Yep. And I think we may be having the opposite overcorrection you know, in the in the positive one, which will lead into mine. But I had two bold predictions. I will tease it. One of them was a stock ripping, and one of them was a stock going down. So you can tell I got. I didn't get the ripping one right, but directionally, I was right on the one that went up and wrong on the one that went down. So, my first one was these are perhaps a bit bolder than Ryan's. I will say. <laughs> Mine was Amazon ends the year 2023 as the largest company in the world by market cap. The reasoning was the cloud transition uh, slowdown does not materialize. There's, I don't know, like I just thought that that was getting overblown. Perhaps it was, but they didn't really see like, the, the growth still slowed down a little bit and we didn't see a reacceleration in growth. Um, so I think that was wrong. 
The second reasoning was that the non-AWS part of the business gets back to profitability because of advertising and normalization of the e-commerce market and then cutting the fat on all the employees they hired in 2021 and 2022. That one was definitely correct. And then since they had to catch up to some other stocks, I thought that Apple would continue to fall uh, because there's a down year for the hardware market and the chickens finally coming home to roost on anti-competitive behavior. What's interesting is the reasoning happened, but Apple is the Teflon stock and it just trades at 30 times earnings, even though revenue is going down. Actually, you know what's kind of funny here? I would say the antitrust was more in Apple's favor than Amazon's and True. Google's. Yeah. Like Apple seems to be the one that's kind of snuck away from a lot of the antitrust scrutiny. Although they're still in these things. And yeah, I guess the stuff hasn't come home to roost if we're going to use that analogy that I put down there. But the risks are getting worse, I'd say. Third, fourth one was that Microsoft uh, will go down a little bit because of a revenue growth deceleration. Big miss there. Uh, yeah, just really nothing. And then Alphabet and Google uh, slash Google, excuse me. It was trading at the same market cap, I think, as Amazon. I said it will do good, do fine, but Amazon has more upside. That one did fairly well. I think Amazon's up 75% this year, but did not uh, become the largest company by market cap in the world. I think it would be more reasonable. Maybe here's a fun question. What do you think the likelihood that they finish 2024 as the largest market cap in the world is? I think it's unlikely. Unlikely. Microsoft, do you think, too much? Yeah. It would take another... Well, it would it would take all these things to go right again. And, well, some of them didn't go right, but it would take a more meaningful correction in Apple and Microsoft, as well as, I think, even... Would it take a double from Amazon here? I, I'm not sure what the, today's market cap looks like, but I think a double from Amazon here is quite unlikely, unless the profitability, the margins really start to inflect quickly, which I don't think has ever been Amazon's MO. They tend yeah, to- so year to date we're up year to date we're up 77.5%. Market cap is one point say six trillion. So yeah, roughly right there on what you were thinking. I, I would think that a double tail or yeah, non-AWS margins would have to go well above 10%, I think, by Q3, Q4 of next year for people to get that optimistic. Which I don't think is impossible. Just Well, I don't think long-term non-AWS margins could be that far away from that figure that you just quoted, more than 10% profit margins. However, I don't know if it'll happen in a year. It seems quick. But Yeah, anyway. I agree. I agree. That, that might be too quick. Okay. Let's go through your second prediction here. Second one, as I said, was quite wrong. I said that Tesla would finish the year at a market cap below $200 billion, which is would be a 50% drop from where it was today. My reasoning was near-term domain and backlight indicators are very pessimistic right now. That ended up being true, I guess, because they ended up having to cut prices by so much. I said supply and commodity costs were extremely elevated. That ended up not being true, as we saw a lot of the commodity costs come down in 2023. Um, I said more competitors have come onto the market. The F-150 and Rivian 
Um, I said, used car prices are falling three times faster than the overall industry right now. That did continue. And then I said there would be a revenue decel plus margin compression leads to the stock falling a lot of falling further. Um, I guess what's interesting is that a lot of these things ended up happening. But it's pretty hard. <laughs> it's a lesson in that you can't predict what a stock's going to do in one year with any sort of certainty, even if you have decent reasoning on it. Yeah, it's so hard to. <laughs> it's just, if you told me what, like, if you told me what happened to Tesla this year, not the stock, like what happened to the business, what some of the struggles they were facing were, I would have guessed there would be some difficulty for the stock as well. But like you said, it's impossible to predict within a one-year time frame. Margins contract yep, stock, too. What margins Mar- contract significantly. So I, what's funny is like, this is why you don't, this is why shorting so hard um, and why you probably need a, you need a really good catalyst if you're going to short or be externally diversified. The stock is up hundred percent this year, but if you look at their quarterly revenue growth, it went from, basically three years ago 90 percent and last quarter we're down to eight percent or 8.8 percent so basically nine percent and if we look at operating margin it is went from a peak of maybe 16 to 17 percent and now we're down to 11.2 percent on a trailing 12-month basis but on the quarterly number it's it's significantly lower so that should continue in 2024 unless they can stop cutting prices so yeah stocks up a lot i don't know (laughs) i mean it's a hot take so it's not like it's anything actual investing advice but i think it's an interesting lesson when you're younger you probably get confident in these type of things like hey look i'm seeing this could happen why don't i short this why don't you know it's pretty clear it's like okay look sometimes it's just flows that matter and if people love the stock like it can go up it can keep going up if people just love it all right, let's do our hot takes for 2024. You want to alternate here, or how do we want to do this? I think alternate makes sense. All right, you yeah. want to kick things off? Sure. These are maybe less sexy <laughs> than last year, but I have, I think that's kind of, you know, last year, it's kind of the opposite environment. Now, I, these, I think the predictions will kind of tell here. So my first one, which kind of relates to last year, is that the big three tobacco stocks, Altria Group, British American Tobacco, and Philip Morris International, on an equal-weighted portfolio, so 33% each, will outperform the Magnificent Seven equal-weighted in 2024 on a total return basis. I have four pieces of reasoning here. Uh, First is the earnings ratios of British American Tobacco and Altria Group are pricing in the accelerated volume declines that occurred in 2023 and may occur for the foreseeable future. We're seeing the PEs came down so much last year. And then Fillmore's International is still an elevated PE, but it has a much better mix for the future of the nicotine space. I think they should see solid, durable revenue growth, foreign currencies excluded, Russia and Ukraine kind of excluded uh, because they have a tough, you know, that, that that's been hurting them. Then I think the Magnificent Seven now generally are overvalued. They have an average PE I did last night of 50. 
and this is equal weighted, so we're not market cap weighting or everything. I just added up the seven PEs on a trailing 12-month basis and divided by seven. And I think only one, Amazon, is under-earning today. And I think NVIDIA and Tesla may be both over-earning on a trailing basis. So I think that that's part of my reasoning. And then I think in 2024, the fears over accelerated volume declines for tobacco will ease because there's just the sentiment around these things are really, really bad right now. And then we also have kind of a weighted dividend yield in the stock. So about seven and a half percent. So nice little real return now with inflation down. So I'll take yours maybe a step further and say U.S. Treasuries will outperform the Magnificent Seven. Now, if rates come down by a little bit, one-year U.S. Treasuries might actually have similar returns, I'm guessing, to tobacco stocks So, or the tobacco basket that you chose there. So the one-year U.S. Treasury yield right now is about 4.8%. I think rates will continue past what has currently been telegraphed, which means they should appreciate in price as well. So basically just... Uh, and but if it's one year, you're holding to maturity, so not not too big, you know. Yeah, but you're basically getting five percent would be my guess here, um, because it's literally stated. But also, yeah, I don't know. I guess I've seen a lot of rate takes, and who knows? And I'm not going to give one here. But let's say you get five percent with U.S. Treasuries. I think you're going to beat the Magnificent Seven because. Like Brett just said, it does feel overvalued. To go to put some perspective on this, from January 2023 to today, here's what has happened to the price to sales multiple of each stock. Now, people are going to hear price to sales. They probably think, well, that's a term I haven't heard since 2020. The it is the reason I'm just using that is because there can be big earnings discrepancies in any given year. And so this and is Nvidia's just, margins are unsustainable, frankly. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the margins are going to be between Apple and Amazon and Microsoft and Google. You would think margins have been somewhat consistent. Meta's actually have doubled, which is kind of insane, but um, you would think it's going to be pretty close to what it was last year over the next year. So price to sales multiple, I don't think it's that it's not the perfect metric, but it is uh, useful to see how much uh, sentiment has improved on these businesses. So NVIDIA's price to sales multiple has gone from, and this is trailing, 12 to 27 over the last year. Tesla's has gone from five to eight. Apple, five to eight. Amazon, two to three. This is a business that, I mean, it's not, it's a 50%, a little more than 50% actually sales multiple expansion, but it's, it's that one a makes sales sense. multiple because the earnings can, the margins can change pretty quickly and have changed pretty quickly for that business. Next three here, Microsoft sales multiple has gone from nine to 13, Google's four to six, Meta's three to seven. So across the board, there's been 50% plus multiple expansion in all these companies. Hard to imagine that happening again. A lot of them have also expanded margins over the last year. I don't think that's going to be sustainable. Well, I don't think companies like like Meta's not going to double their margins again. So I just don't see that repeating. I see them having a tough year, especially being weighed down by Nvidia and Tesla. I just it feels like they've had a lot of momentum 
lately, NVIDIA's business specifically, but Tesla more so in stock price. So I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say U.S. Treasuries outperform. Magnificent 7 has a down year. All right, that's a fun one. Should be easy to track. And let me pull up because this is the three-year anniversary of a tweet I did back in 2020. So three years ago, December 31st, 2020, I said, starting on January 1st of 2021, well, we'll have a better three-year performance. First was FanMag. So Meta, Apple, Netflix, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, equal weighted, or Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, just Berkshire Hathaway. The B shares. 82% of the poll voters from my Twitter following said FanMeg. And that was one of the worst times to invest in FanMeg. Do you want to guess? Maybe, did you see the tweet? I did a follow-up or not? No. I didn't see it. Okay. Who is your prediction of who won? I'd say Berkshire would be my guess. When when was the starting point? January Jan 1st, 2021. 2021. Closed yesterday. Berkshire. I, I, okay. Fan Meg, average total return. So basically we're doing equal weighted, just a total return from the start of 2021. Who's that? of return. The not down in fan mag is that Netflix or, or Nvidia? Netflix, because at the time Nvidia was tiny. Okay. <laughs> it right. shows that, well, yeah, it shows how well Nvidia has done as a stock. Um, average total return 35%, Berkshire 57.6. The buff dog wins again. Long, I said, long live the king. <laughs> yeah, uh, and there was someone that responded, Zoom. That was tough. That did not work out well. There was a lot of the, the replies to that. This shows the sentiment at the time. It was a bubble. You know, that's kind of the phone call from the big short, right? <laughs> uh, but let's keep going. Let's keep going. I thought that was fun because, you know, th I think this will be a similar type one where we can just easily track it. And then next year, we'll see what happens because I think this is a lesson for the listeners. Last year, there was no optimism whatsoever on the Magnificent Seven. Everyone hated him. This year, you can't not be in it, apparently. And I, I would just fade that entirely. I, I like some of them, but the group, I, I, I just don't see why you would own those over treasuries, at least right now. God, investing last year was so fun because you could look at a business like Amazon and Google, which check the box on quality and basically all the qualitative characteristics you're look you're probably looking for in a business it checked the box and you're buying them at reasonable multiples so it yeah 100 percent. it was so, it was so fun back then because you could finally get in and now i'm just on the sidelines being a hater for fan mag all over again or the magnificent seven it's been a while. I mean, the last few years have just been wild. It's funny. Okay. My second prediction. Now, I think this is a fun one. It's a bit of a, more of a stretch, but I see a scenario and a little teaser. We're going to do a very fun sector overview of the media sector uh, that'll come out in January. 
my prediction here is that the cable TV bundle finally collapses in 2024. When what does I mean by collapse? I say the business model finally breaks for all the channels and networks involved: Disney, Fox, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Discovery, etc. And the business model breaking. I think what was a big highlight here is when Disney showed ESPN's financials and how much they've deteriorated in recent years. And that's supposedly the best model here. So, or the most profitable one or the one that has the highest fees. My reasoning is that the only thing holding together the traditional TV model is sports. And Disney is seeing the light here, or not seeing the light, they're seeing that it's ending with ESPN and They're coming out with a true D2C application for that channel and all the sports content they have, which will leave even less of an incentive for sports fans to go there uh, to the traditional one. The NBA is about to renegotiate its TV rights deal. Uh, The regional sports networks are dead and going to get picked up by someone, possibly streamers. I mean, they're all going bankrupt. And then even if tens of millions of people over the age of 50 still want to subscribe to the cable bundle, which I don't really see changing next year, Right, they can afford it. It's what they've always done. Prices aren't going to go up astronomically. The costs are going to be so overwhelming, because especially because of the American football sports rights, which I think cumulatively, which includes Amazon Prime, are $11 billion a year. I guess we'll save the implications for another discussion, but what do you think about this? I may be accelerating the timeline a little bit. I think I would have much more confidence in this on a three-year time horizon that people may be actually underrating the collapse of the cable TV bundle right now, but curious your thoughts. Yeah, I don't know because I do think you maybe accelerated the timeline here. When I think about people that are no longer, that haven't switched, it's all the really old folks who just don't want to. And it makes me feel like we're going to have kind of a, a pretty stubborn remainder of people that don't want to switch to connected TV. So I don't know. I could, I could totally be wrong on that. I agree with you there. I agree with you there, but that doesn't mean the business models don't break. I think you can continue to raise prices on those people. Yeah, but isn't that your argument against tobacco? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I suppose, but those ones might die off quicker. Like the, the I don't know. There's yeah, uh, I guess. But there's there's more leverage here. Like the unit there there is a lot of operating leverage in these models cuz it takes they have the fixed costs. Look, you're paying the NFL 11 billion dollars a year. Yeah. I think it's in a tough spot, but what what do you define as collapses? Like the business model, basically they all go from, I think ESPN was decently pros- profitable over the last 12 months. They all start hem- like losing money and the, you know, they're all, they all become unprofitable. But aren't, they already, business- aren't they already mostly all losing money? No, I mean the parent, a lot of the parent companies are, but the true, and I guess I, I'm not an expert in all these financial statements, but a lot of the traditional models for the channels, you know, are still profitable because they just have some basic content and charge the 
cable providers, you know, four bucks a month. The cable companies are already basically not making any money from the cable TV bundle, but they have the internet stuff and that that's going to, they'll be fine with that. Yeah. It's, it's hard to see. They want it to go away. They, they, they don't care about it anymore. It is hard to see how this model exists five to 10 years down the road, but I just don't see a monumental shift happening in kind of the next year. I do see them continuing to like the parent companies here, shifting their resources to connected TV and trying to move everyone over. But you've got so many just old stubborn customers that want the cable package and they're going to will, they're pretty much willing to pay whatever, because it's a huge part of their life that, I can see them finding a way to generate cash in those businesses. Maybe, maybe. I, I just don't know if, uh, we, let's not talk in circles. I think we've already covered everything. Implications though, I think this just accelerates the share gains for YouTube and Netflix. Yeah. It's hard 100%. to see how they both get, in, in the United States at least, it's, it's hard to see how they both don't go from around 10% where they are today of viewing time on TVs to 20%. Not not next year but over a couple of years. I think YouTube TV is really really well positioned because it's such an easy transition for a lot of those remaining stubborn customers. A lot of the right. parents, grandparents, as long as they can click in, as long as they can find a way to click into YouTube TV, it feels like the same layout and I think that's a huge advantage for them and probably why it has had so much momentum already. Yeah. YouTube's already what? Eight, nine percent of streaming between TV, YouTube and yeah. YouTube TV. And I think it's just TV share in general. Like this is including traditional TV. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I think YouTube's a big winner there. Netflix. And, and it's actually in excluding YouTube TV. So if we're just talking like, there's different ways. This is what one of our favorite analysts, Alex Morris, who will be coming on to do a media overview covers. I should look at the data specifically because there are some intricacies there, but either way, YouTube dominates. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about Netflix. The I am growing more convinced that their push to gaming could work. But they have but, to do it maybe. But yeah. It feels like the relevance in streaming is declining. Let me look at the data. You pull your reasoning there. Let me find the data. It's not about data, Brett. It's about anecdotes. And uh, for me, the anecdotes say that they are not as relevant in my day-to-day watch hours. So that's going to be my ex- what I'm going to extrapolate based on. Let me move to my next hot take while oh, you find wait, the data. Wait. All right. Yeah, okay. And this, I think part of it is because they don't do sports. So let's do a year over year. November 2023, they were, so it's a streaming share of US TV time. So this is overall TV time in the United States. Thank you to our friend Alex Morris at the Science of Hitting Research uh, for compiling this every month. They were 7.4% share November 2023. That is Netflix. Now, if you look at November 2022, 7.6, right? So, not gaining share. YouTube is the one that went from 7.5% to 9. They went 7.4 to 7.6. It's 
I went backwards. I went backwards. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. So, I'm right. <laughs> my gut, my gut feel is right. But I think that's not the, if you're Netflix, you're kind of saying this isn't the worst outcome after the password crackdown, right? No. Yeah. yeah I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's a huge shift for them and something that they had to bite the bullet on for a while. So if you're losing point zero point two percent market share in that process, I think, yeah, that's that's probably a victory. My second hot take is that the consumer discretionary sector will have negative returns for the year. So, and I'm just using, I think it's XLY is the, it's like the consumer discretionary sector ETF. It was up 39% this year. Now, unfortunately, after I wrote this prediction down, I looked at the holdings and 22% of it is Amazon. So we're kind of having to bank on the fact that Amazon has a rough year. But the other names in here include McDonald's, Nike, Starbucks, the Pepsis, Hershey's of the world. And every time I visited and looked at those companies, it has seen great multiple expansion. And they're businesses that have seen accelerated revenue growth trends. So McDonald's is a good example here. They are growing revenue a lot faster than they have been previously. And they're taking a lot of price. Yeah. And a lot of it is coming from pricing. Pepsi was in the same boat. It, to me, feels like it feels unsustainable. And then on top of it, it feels like it's been a flight to safety for a lot of people this year. And that's maybe gone out the maybe hasn't been as popular in the last kind of four months. But earlier this year, every consumer discretionary stock we looked at, I I sat there and thought, this is not going to do better than treasuries. There's no way. Because yeah. even though it's been over-earning that year, the growth over the long run has not been that quick, at least not as quick as it's been kind of the last two years. And a lot of that came from price increases. And they're going to have input costs continue to rise. So I don't know. It just feels to me like it's kind of a recipe for negative returns here. So my my bold takes so far, consumer discretionary sector, negative returns, and basically magnificent seven worse than treasuries and or negative returns. Yeah. I, here's kind of a hot take that came to mind related to your consumer discretionary stuff. I think we may be underrating the weight loss drug risk for these companies in 2024. If so, we've seen those survey, the survey data, which you know you shouldn't trust with 100% certainty. But if that is directionally correct, people that are on these drugs stop really going to you know McDonald's a lot. They stop whatever Hershey's, Pepsi products, Coca-Cola products. They stop those bad habits. And if we actually see that materialize, there's going to be panic. I think my hot take might be Fatozempic. Fatozempic? Yeah. Why? Why? It's too many believers. I just don't think it's the... (laughs) I don't think it's the end of Coca-Cola, you know? Well, we got the... uh... Hey, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I have no data to support that. Obviously, it's... Like, if Coca-Cola is in a better place without Ozempic in the world, but or the other weight loss drugs, but it feels like it's already affected the pricing for a lot of these businesses or the stock 
prices for a lot of these businesses. Let's let's wrap it up here. What's your third hot take? Right. Now, this one would have been because I was I was thinking of this a month ago too. This would have been a lot better a month ago, but I still think it'll work. I say financials are the best performing sector of 2024. Reasoning is pretty easy. Stable interest rates mean they're likely under earning compared to last year just because of that interest rate mismatch and the net interest margin compression, blah, blah, blah. Consumer is fine. Like even if the sentiment out there is low, if you look at the discrepancies between like what people are earning, real wages are up and people's sentiment about the economy and stuff like that are down. So there's a giant mismatch there between people's feelings and the underlying reality of their situations, which means they will be able to pay back loans, even if they are upset because whatever <laughs> political person's in, in, in power. And then they generally are trading at discounted earnings ratios. At least a lot of them are. And I don't know what... There's probably an ETF we can track. We'll be able to easily go back to this. But yeah, I think they're the best performing sector of 2024. Obviously, energy is a wild card. If oil prices go up a lot, well, shoot, that one's going to be the best performing sector. But I think financials have a really great opportunity uh, at the moment. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that take. And that would have been my other... If we're going best performing sector, worst performing sector, I think consumer discretionary will have a rough year. But... Finance would be my top dog for best performing sector. My third hot take, last one here. I've said this before. Either Match Group gets acquired or the stock is up 50% by the end of the year. That's that's my So uh, as for me, you like the stock. (laughs) Correct. And like I said, I've mentioned this before, but I'm bringing it back up. I think it's quite cheap. If it's run correctly and it doesn't have big one-time impairments or charges, I think it can generate a lot of cash. I could certainly see a world where Match Group is generating $1 billion to $2 billion in cash flow each year. Maybe not this year, but over the next kind of two or three years. Today, it has an enterprise value of $13 billion. Bernard Kim, the new CEO, has been in place for a little over a year. He turned Zynga around and had it acquired by Take-Two. It feels like a kind of asset that could fit into, I don't know who the acquirer would be. Maybe it's private equity, but it feels like a valuable, durable asset that oh, yeah, is private equity wants ripe for, for an sure. acquisition. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if it fits into any of the big tech, but it's kind of a unique asset. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, I think it'd be blocked by, I think it'd certainly receive some scrutiny from regulators if Meta or Google or really any of big tech tried to acquire this just because it seems so personal. But yeah, I think it's either a private equity takeout or the stock's at 50% by the end of the year. So that's my that's my bold take. Also talking my book there since we are, or I am a shareholder. Um, I'm a shareholder as well. Yeah, my my bold take is all all the stocks in my portfolio are up significantly by the end of the next year. (laughs) All right, let me sum these up and then we'll go through our recommendations and get out of here. One, for me, big three tobacco stocks on an equal weighted basis outperform the Magnificent Seven on an equal weighted basis in the year of our Lord 2024. Two, the cable TV bundle model finally collapses, which means for my definition, as I wrote down here, they go from, they all start hemorrhaging money. 
three. Uh, financials are the best performing sector of 2024. All right, now to Ryan's. U.S. Treasuries outperform the Magnificent Seven. Two, the consumer discretionary sector will have negative returns for the year, but it's not because of Ozempic, uh, which I think is quite funny, Ryan. Three, Match Group gets acquired or is up by 50%. Yep. Let's do the best of for the year, best of 2024. Starting with best book. What was your favorite book you read of 2024? Could be finance edition, could be fiction. Yeah, so this is definitely not my favorite, although it's good, but I would recommend it to anyone following the semiconductor sector. I think my favorite book was probably Skunk Works, but just read that if you want any history of Lockheed Martin. I don't think it's relevant from an investing perspective, but well, maybe, maybe Lockheed Martin, but Chip War which goes through the semiconductor geopolitical stuff and how that's kind of grown from a small industry to one of the most important in the world. I think it. people always call stuff required reading. I would recommend reading it if you are interested in this sector, uh, which I am. So yeah, Chip War uh, also, is the title. You'll be able to find it. Also fun for understanding the role of Taiwan in the global semiconductor industry and how it got to where it is because they, they go through all the history there and it, it was pretty fascinating. My favorite book, non-finance related, I like Killers of the Flower Moon. Talked about that before the movie came out. I haven't actually watched the movie, but I'll wait until it's out on Apple TV or something. Finance. Not good. You're going to be underwhelmed. Ah, bummer. All right. Finance movie, or not finance movie, finance book. And this isn't, it's more just a biography made in America, Sam Walton, pretty interesting parallels between him and some other great founders today. I think the customer centricity, the focus on customer and just being very detail oriented. And it kind of reminds me of this, the executive team at AutoZone that we looked at this year where they're just maniacally focused on the business and serving customers correctly. And even though it's such a simple formula, it, people tend to overlook that in corporate America. And I, I thought the fact that Sam Walton, even though he wasn't this brilliant guy, by just being able to focus on the customer and was really passionate about retailing, he was able to build this massive empire. So I thought that was a really fun book to read and kind of gives you a glimpse into economies of scale for one, but also Walmart's advantages. I was on mute. Excuse me. Now let's go to best investment pitch. I guess I'll start. Mine was Edward Chang, who is, I should say, for a little pitch here, founder, portfolio manager at Pledge Capital. Uh, he came on the show to pitch this, but he did the pitch beforehand. Uh, which inspired us to have him call on the show and discuss kind of an updated part of the thesis. And it was his pitch on Amazon. It ended up being very right. And I think it was just a high quality one. I learned a lot from it. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. And it, I think at the time the stock was trading around low 100s, if I'm not mistaken. So it was very timely as well. My favorite investment pitch and this was not done on our show, but I'm a big fan of Ian Bezek's uh, 
Substack where he writes a lot of his blogs. He covers South American economies and, and stocks that he finds undervalued there. I believe it's called Ian's Insider Corner. I thought his pitch on a number of different Colombian names were compelling, particularly the Bank of Colombia. The stock's up a little bit since he pitched it, but just the investment pitch itself has been, I thought it was really well articulated and, and made a lot of sense. And it seems like there's a lot of value there, despite a lot of the narratives around various uh, South American economies. So he's my peephole into everything South America. And uh, it's it's refreshing to, to read his work because he thinks, kind of thinks like us, but he has a much better view of the economies down there. Okay, to wrap things up, as the show always goes a little bit long, but something was crazy long. Best substacks or blogs from 2023, or not even best, more of what we'd recommend for listeners to give a follow. I got three. Ryan has two here. I have Invariant, which is a substack from our uh, recurring guest, Devin Lassar. Brooklyn Investor. And then Lewis Enterprises, I think all three different types of work, different types of writing, but all three high quality. And I learn a lot from all all of them. Yeah, my three, I mentioned Ian's Insider Corner there. That's one of them. Second one would have to be our friend Alex Morris, The Science of Hitting Substack. I really enjoy all of his work. We own a couple of companies that he also owns. So it's always, sometimes I just wait to read his reports uh, before take any any action after uh, like an earnings update or something like that. Cause it's always refreshing to get his thoughts. And then the last one is buyback capital. He's been on the show, I think a couple of times now and he has a really good Substack. He, I believe he came on and pitched FICO, which has been a really strong performing stock. So he, he always has witty and uh, I think uh, he, he spices some humor into really good analysis, which there's a lot of dry, dry investment analysis out there. So for him to have just the the humor included is always nice to read. Nice. Yeah. And he also came on and talked Verisign. Interesting company as well. Okay. I think that's going to do it. Ryan, anything else before we sign off and go for, you know, I don't know, the rest 2024. of 2023. 2024. 2024. 2024. I always make that mistake. Chit Chat Stocks. It's the new show. That's uh, that's the new name. Remember it and grant it in your minds. <laughs> yep. And there will be a transition period. So we'll be probably saying Chit Chat Stocks, but also Chit Chat Money. And then rough timeline. Officially, everything will be Chit Chat Stocks in February. Give it about a month of a transition period. Let me hit the disclosure and we'll get out of here. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, oh, excuse me. That was the old disclosure. Ryan and I may hold securities discussed in this podcast. We may have held them in the past. We may hold them today and we might buy, sell, or hold them in the future. Thank you everyone again for listening in 2023. We hope to keep putting out quality content and improve the show in 2024. All right. We'll see you guys next time.